Father, we thank you that uh, you so love the world that you, you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, we thank you that uh, your love is not merely a, a sentimental love, but it is a love that acts, a love that reaches out to save. Lord, we thank you that your love is that way. And we pray that through your word this morning uh, that we would, as your children, experience your love and experiencing your love be able to reach out to others with that same love, Lord. Um, and any who are here this morning who have not yet tasted and seen uh, your goodness through your word, Lord, may you open their eyes to who you are. May you shower your love upon them and draw them to your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you are driving down the road and all of a sudden you start to hear a shrill squeal coming from the front of your car, or when you start to see smoke pour out from under the hood, what do you do? You pull over to the side of the road and you pop the hood. And as you get out of the car and as you come around to the front, are you excited to lift up that hood and see what has gone wrong underneath? Are you happy about that? No, you'd rather do anything else than lift up that hood and see what's going on underneath. But, despite your hesitancy, you do it anyway. Why? Because the health of your car requires it. Well, that hesitant feeling can be all the more pronounced when you sense that something has gone wrong in your heart. And when you feel the need to pop the hood of your soul. Too often we just keep driving instead of pulling over, getting alone with God, and asking him to search our hearts and looking at his word to examine ourselves and calling another brother or sister along to help us. Too often we just keep going rather than stopping to consider what's going on in our hearts. But isn't the health of your soul more important than that of your car. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, the Apostle Paul exhorts us by saying, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. It's this difficult work of self-examination that we have started to look at. We started looking at it last week, and that's what we're looking at today. Last week, we sought to answer the first of three questions. We're going to look at the other two questions today, but last week we sought to answer the first question regarding what we should expect as believers, when it comes to what the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives is supposed to look like. As believers, what are we supposed to expect uh, our lives to look like if we indeed have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us? And we started off by really stripping it down to the bare bones of the issue. And we looked at the Holy Spirit's very first saving action in our lives. That is, when he causes us to be born again. And we looked at what that new birth results in. 
It results in our repentant faith. And so we discovered that when we're questioning whether or not I'm saved, whether or not I have the Holy Spirit in my life, the most foundational thing we should look for is whether or not there is repentant faith. Do I repent? Do I believe in the Jesus of the Bible and the good news concerning him? If I come to the conclusion that, yes, I am repenting, I am believing, the only way that's possible is if the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again. Because if he had not caused you to be born again, you would not be repenting and believing. You would still be dead in your sin and unable to turn to the Lord. So we, we, we looked at that base level of the Spirit's activity in our lives. Then last week we went a step further to examine what fruits are produced by that repentant faith that God grants to us. If I have been born again, if I have come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, receiving his free salvation, then that is necessarily going to result in various fruits, various good works that the Holy Spirit will produce in my life. And we look specifically at one list of those fruits that the Apostle Paul gives us. Galatians 5, 22 to 23, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And I wanted to mention last week, but didn't have time to, that, that those fruits that we see in the book of Galatians, an unbeliever can bear similar fruits. He can show love. He can have a degree of joy. He can have a measure of peace and patience. But the kind of fruit that Paul is talking about is a very God-centered, Christ-focused type of fruit. It's a very specific kind of fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. It's not just any kind of love. It's not just any kind of joy or any kind of peace. It is the specific kinds of love and joy and peace and so on that comes from Jesus Christ himself and is characterized by his character. We, last week, began to touch on the concern that arises within us when we read lists like that and then we compare our lives to what we've read and find that we fall short of what the Scripture is calling us to. There's a concern that, that should arise in our hearts. And it is that concern that brings us to the second question that we're looking at this morning. And that question is this. What does the lack of such activity of the Holy Spirit mean? What does it mean when I don't see that fruit happening or occurring in my life? If I'm not, let's just go through Paul's list, if I'm not seeing love for God and for others, if I'm not seeing joy in who God is and in what he does and in how he blesses and uses his people, if I'm not at peace with God and am not actively pursuing peace with others, if I have no patience in the midst of trial and my faith seems to continually fold under the pressures of life, 
If there's nothing in me that, for the sake of Christ, wants to be kind to those who don't deserve it. If my life does not seem to be growing in goodness, that is, growing in conformity to Christ's likeness, if I'm not seeing faithfulness to God, to his word, to his people, if I'm so often harsh rather than gentle in how I treat others when they do me wrong, if I struggle to resist temptation and seem to fall the moment my flesh has the opportunity to fulfill its lusts, if I don't see these fruits in my life, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, we have to be careful how we answer this because we don't want to coddle someone who is in unrepentant sin and say, that's okay, you're okay, don't worry about it. But at the same time, we don't want to unnecessarily disturb and discourage someone who is repenting and believing, who is bearing fruit, but who is having a hard time recognizing it. We don't want to come at that person and drive them to despair. We have to be careful in how we answer this. So I'll start this way. If you are concerned this morning with the lack of fruit in your life, let me ask you, are you concerned because you see no fruit in your life? Or are you concerned because you're only seeing a little bit of fruit in your life? And I put it that way because I want us to realize that those are two very different things. We think they're kind of similar, none, little bit, but spiritually speaking, those are two very different things. There is a world of difference between a dead tree that bears no fruit and a living tree that bears any fruit whatsoever. Whether that living tree is healthy or sick, there is still a world of difference between it and the dead tree, isn't there? In order to try to carefully help those who are concerned about a lack of fruitfulness in their lives, I want to consider three different types of people. Three different types of people. And we're still on this second question. What does the lack of such activity mean? Well, we're going to consider that question as it relates to three different types of people. The first type I call the fruitless unbeliever. And that's the only kind of unbeliever there is, a fruitless unbeliever. The, un the person who is dead in sin, who is unable to bear any of the fruits of the Spirit because he does not have the Holy Spirit. He has not been given new life by Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and if you don't see any of the fruits of the Spirit being produced in your life, then this might be you. You are likely still dead in your sins still an enemy of God, still headed for the experience of the wrath of God if you see no fruit in your life. What should you do if that is you? If that's you this morning, you should be concerned. You should be very concerned. And you should be asking what the crowd asked when Peter said, you crucified the Son of God. They said, what shall we do? That should be what you ask. What should I do? Well, the answer for what you should do is not for you to try harder to be more loving, not to try harder to be more joyful or to be more peaceful or more patient and so on. Why is that not the answer? Well, it's because of two reasons. First of all, good fruit or good works cannot save you. 
being more loving or trying to be more patient, that is not going to atone for your sin. That is not going to wash away your guilt. Good fruit cannot do that. Only Christ can do that. Secondly, you are incapable of producing the fruit of the Spirit because dead trees cannot bear fruit. So what should you do instead of just trying harder? What do you need to do? Well, you need to cry out to God for mercy. You need to go to Jesus Christ for salvation. You need to ask him to save you from your sins. You need to ask him to transform you and to make you what he wants you to be. And if you have that concern and you say, yes, I want salvation, that is good. That means God is at work in your heart and you should run to Jesus in faith. Do you know that Jesus never turns away anyone who comes to him in faith? That's what he says in John chapter 6, and I think it's verse 37. Everyone who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He is an eager Savior. So if you turn from your sin and you turn to him in faith, you will find Jesus Christ waiting for you with open arms to receive you and to forgive you and to change you. Listen to Jesus' own invitation to you this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's an eager Savior. He doesn't stiff-arm anyone who comes to him truly. So that's, that's what the fruitless unbeliever should do. He should run to Christ for salvation. The second group that we will look at is the believer with little fruit, just a little bit of fruit. What if this is you? What if you are seeing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, but it appears very minimal, very inconsistent, very feeble? What if there are long stretches in your life where you just don't see hardly any fruit at all? What does that mean? Well, again, any fruit at all means what? Life. Any fruit at all. You would not be able to bear any fruit of the Spirit if you were not alive in Christ, if you did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. But why so little fruit? In my life, you may ask. Well, the reason for the relative fruitlessness of your life could be that you have fallen into a pattern of sin. And because you are not daily feeding your soul on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and because you are not daily repenting, because you are not daily confessing that sin to God and to others, and because you are not daily making use of the means God has given you to fight that sin, you are stuck in it. You are languishing in it. You need to understand that sin is like herbicide. If you take an herbicide and you squirt it on a plant, should you expect there to be fruit born from that plant? No, you're killing that plant, aren't you? Well, sin is like that. If you are in unrepentant sin, you are not going to bear fruit, at least not consistently or increasingly 
It, it is as the 17th century English theologian John Owen said. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There is no in-between. If you give sin an inch, it will take a mile. It will. You will never be able to bear much fruit if you do not take seriously the business of waging ruthless war on your sin. And you will never grow in the assurance of your salvation while you are giving sin such a foothold in your life. Sin, Jesus came to save you from sin. And so if you're allowing sin to rule in your life, then of course you are going to struggle with assurance. You're not going to see the reality of what Christ did to save you. You're, you're, if you're not experiencing that, you're going to have trouble coming to a place of assurance. Well, if that's you, what do you do? If you're trusting in Christ for salvation, but you're not seeing much fruit, what do you do? Well, turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 15. And we're looking at the first 11 verses. John's Gospel, 15, verses 1 through 11. This is Jesus talking. He says, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and, are, and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as a Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. According to this passage, who is the one who bears much fruit? Verses 4 and 5. Let me read those two verses again. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. The one who bears much fruit is the one who abides in Jesus. When you read lists like the one that Paul gives in Galatians 5, and you see a lack of fruitfulness in your life, you need to be careful that you properly diagnose what the problem is. 
The problem is not a lack of fruitfulness. A lack of fruitfulness is just the symptom of the disease. It is not the disease itself. The disease that needs to be addressed is a lack of abiding in Christ. That is the problem. An apple tree, consider an apple tree. The absence of fruit in an apple tree is the symptom that tells you that the tree is sick. You cannot heal that sick tree by just going around stapling apples to the tree. You you cannot fix the problem that way. What do you do instead? You make sure that the tree is rooted in good soil, that it's getting the nutrients that it needs, that there's not something cutting off the supply of root, uh, nutrients feeding those branches. And it's the same in your spiritual life. To answer, or the, excuse me, the answer to the problem of your fruitlessness is not to run around trying to do a bunch of good deeds, trying to staple apples to your life. If you do that, it's not going to last because you're not addressing the root problem, which is you're not abiding in Christ. So when you don't see fruitfulness in your life, what do you do? You run to Christ. He is the soil that you need to plant yourself in. And once you are firmly taking your stand upon Jesus Christ and what he has done for you on the cross, once you are firmly looking to him and trusting in him and leaning on him, learning from him and desiring after him, then you will begin to see fruit grow in your life. We saw last week that faith produces fruit. Fruit does not produce faith. And faith does not spring up out of nowhere. Where does faith come from? Who gives it to you? It's Christ himself, isn't it? So if you are lacking fruit, it's because you're lacking faith. And if you're lacking faith, the remedy can only be found in Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of faith. It is only he who can give you faith. Remember Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So if you read Galatians 5, 22 to 23, and you look at your life and, and see that it is far from matching up to that, you need to go to Christ. If you would have more fruit, you must have more Christ. So that is the believer with little fruit. Now let's consider the third group, the third type of person who has concern when he reads those passages. And this is the fruitful but anxious believer. We've looked at those who are concerned because there's no fruit of the Spirit being produced in their lives. We've looked at those who are concerned because there's very little fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Now let's look at these folks. These are the people who think they have no fruit in their lives or think that they have very little fruit in their lives when the reality is quite different. They are bearing fruit, and they are increasing in bearing fruit. They are repenting of sin. They are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. They are truly striving to live for him. But despite that, they are still often fearful about the state of their soul. These folks should be encouraged, but they're discouraged. 
They should be assured of their salvation, but they're not. These people, usually with a very melancholy disposition, that's me, by the way, these people usually do not, be need, usually do not need to be exhorted to examine themselves. Why not? Because that's what they're doing all day, every day, ex examining themselves. Every little stumble into sin causes them intense concern about their salvation. Every momentary and slight dip in their love for Christ and their obedience to Christ upsets the entire apple cart of their assurance. Why is it so with such people? Well, in many cases, it's probably because their gaze is too easily averted away from Christ. They are stuck on examining the quality of their faith, and they're so stuck on that that they stop looking at the object of their faith, who is Jesus Christ. They're like the guy standing on the road, smoke pouring out of the engine, and he's just standing there looking into the abyss of that engine compartment, seeing the problems, which may not be a serious problem, and he's like a deer in the headlights looking at what he cannot fix. And he's so transfixed by what he sees that he doesn't pick up the phone to call the one who can fix the problem, the mechanic. They are like Peter who, as long as he kept his eyes on Christ, he was able to walk on water. But as soon as he looked away, he began to sink. What do these folks need to do? Well, what they need to do is get both of their eyes locked onto Jesus Christ. They need to obey what the preacher to the Hebrews commands us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. You can't run the race any other way than that. But by fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. These folks need to make sure that they are drinking deeply from the gospel every single day. They need to make sure that they are constantly and consistently bringing before their minds the saving promises of God. And they need to be very aware of their sinful tendency to start leaning on their own works to be made acceptable to God rather than leaning fully upon the work of Christ who has made them acceptable to God. There's so much more that could be said about each group that we've talked about. But I want you to notice something. Did you notice that the answer for each group of people that we talked about was the same? It's the same. What does the fruitless unbeliever need to do? He needs to trust Christ, follow Christ. What does the believer with very little fruit needs to do? He needs to trust Christ, follow Christ. 
What does the fruitful but anxious believer need to do? He needs to trust Christ, follow Christ. Christ is always the answer. We need him and we never stop needing him. He's the vine, remember? We draw our life from him and we cannot draw life from anywhere else but him. And that brings us to our third question. How do we get more of Christ? Or as I've put it on the outline, how do we cultivate the Spirit's activity, the Spirit's fruit-producing activity in our lives? Well, let's go back to Galatians chapter 5. I've referenced it many times, but let's actually look at it. Galatians 5, 16 to 24. In verse 16, Paul commands us to walk by the Spirit. And it is in the context of that command that Paul lists for us, in verses 22 to 23, what the fruits of the Spirit are. And the obvious connection, as you read through that passage, the obvious connection between those two things, Paul's command to walk by the Spirit and what the fruit of the Spirit is, the obvious connection between the two is that walking by the Spirit results in those fruits. And I want to just briefly work through these verses in between verses 16 and 22 so that you can see this connection but also so that you can see what it means to walk by the Spirit. Because if you tell someone walk by the Spirit, you haven't really explained what that is. How do I do that? It sounds good, but I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, let's look at verse 16. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Paul tells us here that if I walk by the Spirit... And we're going to find out what that means. But if I walk by the Spirit, I will not do what my sinful flesh wants to do. And verse 17 explains why that is. Why walking by the Spirit necessarily results in me denying what my flesh wants to do. Verse 17. For, he's explaining, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. The reason why walking by the Spirit results in denying the flesh is because the Holy Spirit's desires and the desires of your sinful flesh are completely at odds with one another. So to do what the one wants is to not do what the other one wants. To do what the Spirit wants is to not do what your flesh wants, and vice versa. Now, this gives us an insight into what it means to walk by the Spirit. Because in verse 17, Paul is talking about what the Spirit wants versus what your flesh wants. To walk by the Spirit means to do what the Holy Spirit desires to be done, not what your flesh desires to be done. Verse 18, Paul says, But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. And with this verse, we get another insight into what Paul means when he says walk 
by the Spirit. He means to follow the lead of the Spirit. If we follow the lead of the Spirit, we show that we are no longer underneath the curse of the law. Then look at verses 19 to 21. These verses show us what happens if we follow the lead of the flesh. What happens, uh, what is produced in our lives when we do what the flesh wants us to do. Verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The person who is completely absent of the life of the Spirit within them, their lives are filled with this list. To some degree or another, their heart is filled with this. Their life is characterized by this. That is what they are practicing. That is what they are living in. And such will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is what the flesh produces That is what happens when you do the desires of the flesh, when you follow the lead of your flesh, when you walk by the flesh. That is what is produced. But then Paul brings in the contrast in verses 22 to 23. What happens when we walk by the Spirit, when we do what the Spirit wants done, when we follow the lead of the Spirit? Verse 22 But the fruit of the Spirit, or the fruit that the Spirit produces, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In this passage, verses 16 to 23, we've seen that walking by the Spirit means obeying His desires and following His lead. But we still haven't completely explained what, practically speaking, this is supposed to look like in my life. Okay, I'm to walk by the Spirit. I'm to do what the Spirit wants. I'm to follow His lead. But how do I know what the Spirit wants? How do I know where He's leading me to go? Well, God has provided us with various means through which we come to know those things. And these means that I'm speaking about are things that the scriptures call us to fill our lives with. And as we fill our lives with these means, these prescriptions that the Word of God tells us to fill our lives with, we will discover more and more what the Spirit wants. And we will discover more and more where He's leading us, where He wants us to go. And not only that, but as we fill our lives with these means, they become a conduit through which the grace of God flows into our life and begins to transform us from the inside out so that I begin to want what the Spirit wants more and more, so that I receive the energy and the will and the drive to do what the Spirit wants me to do. But if my life is absent of these means, I'm not going to get that. I'm not going to know what the Spirit wants me to do. I'm not going to know how He wants me to live, and I'm not going to desire to live that way. It's critical that we know what these means are 
and that having come to know what they are, we fill our lives overflowing with them. So let's look at what these means are that the Scriptures have prescribed for us. And these are things that we are commanded to do continually. And more could be added to what I have here, but I'm just going to focus on three of them. And the first one is meditating on Scripture. Meditating on Scripture. Let's go back to Joshua chapter 1. God here gives Joshua instructions as he's beginning to lead the people of God into the promised land. Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 6, this is what God says to him. He says, Be strong and courageous, for you, Joshua, shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Now listen to this. He says, Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. And the success that God is talking about is not, I get to have a Ferrari kind of success. It's, I'm being faithful to God and I'm uh, serving his people well. It's that kind of success. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now let's turn to Psalm 1. We see the same thing here in this first psalm. And we're just looking at the first three verses. Psalm 1, verse 1. The psalmist writes, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates. How often? Day and night, he, this person whose delight is in the word of God, this person who meditates on the word of God day and night, he, verse 3, will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The person who is filled with the word of God planting himself in the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God day and night. Is he fruitful or unfruitful? He's fruitful. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances is. If that tree is planted by streams of living water, it doesn't matter if there's a famine in the land or if there's a drought in the land. He will be unaffected by that because he's still drawing from that ever-flowing stream. And if you are grounding yourself in the Word of God. It doesn't matter if life is falling apart around you or if life is going well. You are still going to be producing fruit because you are in the soil of the Word of God. And who is the Word of God? Jesus Christ. He is the vine. If you are attached to Him, you will produce fruit. So that's the first one. 
meditating on the scripture. The second one is praying. Praying. You know, our, our relationship with God is a relationship, which means there's two-way communication. How do you hear from God? It's not by going in your closet and trying to be really careful and listening really hard. No, it's by opening this book and reading what he is saying to you. That is how you hear from God. But you also have to speak to God, and you do that through prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Ephesians 6, verse 18. Paul says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times. In the Spirit, at all times, we are to pray. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Doesn't matter how big or how little it is. Be anxious for nothing. What should we do instead? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what happens when we do that? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Our lives are to be filled with prayer. All the time we should be talking to God. All the time we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He's the vine. You need to be praying to him all the time. And then lastly, fellowshipping with one another. Hebrews chapter 3. This is another means of the grace of God that we should be doing all the time, fellowshipping with one another. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. The preacher writes, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. How can we keep that from happening? Verse 13, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. What do we refer to today, March 12, 2023? Today, which means we are to be doing what? Encouraging one another so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then when we wake, we wake up tomorrow, again, it's today, and we should be doing this. Over in chapter 10 of this same letter, Hebrews 10, verse 24, he says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, 
not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're 2,000 years after this was written, so all the more, how much more is this true now? And then lastly, James 5. James 5, verse 16. The next book over from Hebrews. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Fruitlessness is a disease that we need to be healed of. And part of abiding in Christ is fellowshipping with one another because we are the what of Christ? The body of Christ. Jesus is up in heaven, but through his spirit, he is here in each one of you. Each one of you can carry Christ to someone else because he lives inside of you. You can become that conduit through which Jesus ministers to someone. And when we're struggling, we should seek brothers and sisters in Christ for help because the Spirit of Christ dwells in them and they can take the Word of Christ and they can feed that to you. That is part of abiding in Jesus Christ. And I'm sure more means could be added, but it is as we fill our lives with these things that we gain clearer views of our Savior, that we tap into his life more, and we begin to get in closer step with the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. It's not some secret about how we grow in fruit-bearing. There's not some hidden knowledge that you need some guru to come and tell you, say, I figured it out. No, God wrote it in black and white, and it's all over this book. It's not a secret. All you have to do is take it and live it, and fruitfulness will occur. And that's a promise. That's not my promise. That's God's promise. Let me close by reading Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let's pray. Father, uh, your word is so clear. We thank you that you've made it so simple. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it is simple. We don't need to wonder about how to address the lack of fruit in our lives. The answer is clear, and it's simple. We run to Christ. And he has made himself available to us through his word, through prayer, through gathering with one another. He is not holding himself aloof from us. He is here through his spirit dwelling within each one of us, through the, his word that we hold in our hands, through your ear that is bent toward us continually as we call out to you, Lord, you don't make it hard to abide in you. You have filled our lives with opportunities. It's on us for not taking those opportunities and making the most of them. Lord, give us a hunger and thirst to abide in Christ that drives us to your word, that drives us to prayer, that 
drives us to one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.